What's going on, Vinyl Community? You are listening to The Record Spinner, and this is the second episode of my current rotation series that I'm hosting here exclusively on Vinyl Community Podcasts, and it is a series where I discuss in great detail all of the records that I have been spinning as of lately on my turntable, and this is quite an interesting episode that I have for you guys. We have some classic live albums, all-girl groups, Kiss bootlegs, and much more, so if you want to hear more about those kind of records, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. So first off, one of the records that I have been listening to non-stop as of lately is the album Fanny Hill by the band Fanny. Uh, the interesting thing with this group is that this was the first all-female rock band that got signed to a major label. They were signed on the reprise label back in the late 60s going into the early 70s. And if you can dig things like The Beatles, Badfinger, Big Star, and a little bit of some like early Motown, then you will absolutely adore Fanny. And it's thanks to my good friend slash co-worker Patrick for making me aware of this particular band. And I always have this thing for all female rock bands because, let's face it, in most cases, they tend to rock harder than the boys. Uh, so on this album of theirs, Fanny Hill, which I believe is their third album, this came out back in 1972. Um, we have a killer selection of tracks. We do have some covers, um, such as uh, Marvin Gaye's Ain't That Peculiar, which has this great um, slide guitar lick that is so infectious. Uh, they also have a cover of the Beatles' Hey Bulldog, uh, which actually sort of ties in with this record because this was recorded at Apple Studios in London with Jeff Emmerich uh, as the engineer, who of course worked with the Beatles from the period of, I think it was Revolver up until the White Album. Uh, this album was also produced by a gentleman by the name of Richard Perry, uh, who is actually, I don't know if most people know, but he had produced the God Bless Tiny Tim album from 68, I want to say. But uh, but this is a phenomenal, phenomenal record. Uh, the pressing that I am referring to, that I've been listening to, is the one that Real Gone Music had put out just last year. Uh, comes pressed on sort of hazy, translucent vinyl. Comes with an insert with lyrics. And it is such a phenomenal, phenomenal album that I can't get enough of. And I actually have to uh, get a hold of some of their other albums that are out there and uh, originals go for pretty pennies so there are some reissues out there uh, but nonetheless it's an absolutely phenomenal listen and there's also a documentary out there about this band uh, that I have to seek out for myself too so if you want to get a little piece of all-female rock history uh, in your blood then definitely listen to Fanny Hill. Next up we are going to jump into some classics territory with one of the greatest pre-Kiss Alive live albums. I say that because, you know, maybe this is biased. Kiss is my favorite band of all time, and I do think that Kiss Alive is probably the single greatest live album ever made. It set the blueprint for everything to follow suit. Uh, so when I say pre-Kiss Alive, this live album obviously came out before 1975, but to the eyes of many, it can be considered the greatest live album of all time, if not one of the greatest live albums of all time, and that is The Who Live at Leeds. Now, the version that I have been spinning is not the standard one LP version that many have come to familiarize themselves with, 
with tracks such as Young Man Blues and uh, Summertime Blues. But what I have is the 3LP Deluxe Edition Abbey Road Half Speed Master Pressing, which brings together the entire show that the band performed at Leeds University spread across three LPs. So you get things like Heaven and Hell, Can't Explain, Tattoo, um, a nice little medley of hits with Substitute, Happy Jack, and I'm a Boy. Uh, they also do um, the little mini rock opera of A Quick One While He's Away. And of course, I think the centerpiece of the set is an electrified, condensed version of the Tommy album, which they had obviously were performing live at this point. Somewhat in its entirety, they kind of took out a couple of, you know, extended bits and things. Uh, But given that, you know, that album's production, Tommy's in particular, was so fleshed out and with brilliant arrangements and, you know, extra bits and pieces, hearing just four guys on the stage playing it is such a treat. And I, you know, when it comes to, like, the classic debate of, like, Tommy versus Quadrophenia, I always pick Quadrophenia. To me, that is, like, peak who. And, you know, Tommy is always highly regarded, and I totally see that. But, I don't know, upon, like, the first listen, it just always kind of went past my head. But hearing this live version on this expanded live at Leeds pressing, it, it just completely almost re-evaluated my interest in uh, for Tommy. So now it's making me want to dig deeper into that. Since I do have it in my collection, I've only played it honestly once, uh, but now it's making me want to go back further. And then we of course have a nice sort of extended version of uh, My Generation with various Tommy bits and things kind of inserted, and we have a cool loose rendition of Magic Bus. And the band sounds tight, the sound quality is phenomenal. Of course it was a multi-track recording, so it's been freshly mixed and such. Not freshly as in brand spank and new, but I believe this mix was done of the full show around, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, and then this vinyl press came out in 2016, where they uh, mastered it at half speed at Abbey Road, and of course it comes with, like, a Japanese-style obi strip, uh, mastered by Miles Showell, it comes with a... um, Certificate of half-speed master authenticity and such. Printed inner sleeves with track-by-track breakdowns and photos taken from the show. It's an all-around solid package. I believe they repressed this fairly recently, so if you want to check it out for yourself, it should be relatively easy to get. But, uh, but yeah, definitely a great sort of expanded, in-depth look at one of the, like I said, pre-Kiss Alive classic live albums of all time. And speaking of KISS, we are going to dive into some KISS bootleg territory. Like I've said, KISS is my favorite band of all time, and when it comes to the world of bootlegs, I go absolutely nuts over anything that bears the KISS logo. And the one that I just happen to be listening to as of lately is a bootleg called Alive in Houston, September 1977. Now, this is a quote-unquote soundboard recording taken from The Summit in Houston, Texas, on September 1st, 1977, during the Love Gun Tour. I say, quote-unquote, soundboard recording because uh, the two shows that KISS did um, at the Summit on September 1st and 2nd of 77 were archived by the uh, Summit's in-house video crew, and the audio source is basically a soundboard source. It's crystal clear, a little bit of faint audio noise that you can hear being picked up from the microphones. Um, The show from the first is the more lesser-known show, I would say when it comes to people that are into KISS audio and video because the show from September 2nd is featured 
on the Kissology Volume 1 DVD, and the show from the first has been circulating in the bootleg circles for a while. I think, you know, to be fair, I think the second show is superior because of the lighting is much better on the video, but audio-wise, it's the same across the two, and um, it's a phenomenal listen. And what's interesting with... Um, the track selection on this single LP pressing that was put out by a label called Vern Records. They're a rather reputable bootleg label based out in Europe. Um, it's a single LP, so it's not the full show, but what I like about it is that it takes away tracks um, that had appeared on like the first Kiss Alive album. So like at this point, they were doing things like Firehouse, Rock and Roll All Night, and um, Black Diamond. So those tracks don't appear on here, but you basically get everything else, such as, you know, I Stole Your Love, Take Me, Ladies Room, Love Gun, Christine 16, I Want You, so on and so forth. But this can be seen also as a nice sort of alternate companion piece to um, Kiss Alive 2, which was recorded right around this time frame, a couple of weeks prior in Los Angeles at the LA Forum. Yes, despite the fact that it was touched up at Soundcheck and the studio, blah, blah, blah. It's from the same time frame. So this could be seen as a nice sort of alternate window into that realm. Also, given the fact that there are tracks on here, such as uh, Take Me and Hooligan, that do not appear on Kiss Alive 2, despite the fact that they were basically concert staples at this point during the Love Gun tour. But uh, but yeah, there's a couple of um, different bootlegs that do pop up from time to time of the Houston 77 shows. And if you see them and you're looking for a great sounding Kiss bootleg from the Love Gun tour, definitely jump on one of these. You won't be disappointed. So we go from hard rock to post-punk and new wave, which is basically like total polar opposites. But the next record that I'm going to be talking about is the self-titled debut album by Tubeway Army. Now, Tubeway Army featured a pre-solo fame Gary Newman on vocals, guitars, and keyboards. Now, before I heard this album, I was already familiar with the Gary Newman album, The Pleasure Principle, which is an absolutely phenomenal post-punk new wave album, very much driven with synthesizers, and of course, the one track that I think everyone knows off of that album is the song Cars. Uh, but it's thanks to my good friend slash co-worker Patrick, um, who had actually played me uh, the Tubeway Army album one day while we were working together at the shop that we both work at, and I was honestly surprised with how heavy it was to my ears and you know when you compare an album like this to the pleasure principle the guitars make more of a prominent feature here in two-way army's musical palette to the point where it's almost it veers onto like not exactly hard rock but there is that you know heavy distorted edge that is still kind of punky but it's not quirky enough to be kind of new wavy and post-punky um, I feel like those aren't real words, post-punky, whatever. But anyways, you, you kind of get the general gist. So if you kind of dig Gary Newman and you want a slight heavier twist, then check out this Tubeway Army album. Uh, for a long time, reissues of this record, I think the last one that came out was in like 2010, were fetching like a hundred plus dollars. But literally upon looking at the distros where I can get product in for the shop that I, uh, that I manage, I saw that this was being reissued by a label called Beggar's um, Archive, uh, which of course I believe is a subsidiary label of the Beggar's Banquet label um, in England, and they're doing a massive reissue campaign of various titles on the roster. They also did the um, 
the Love and Rockets albums, which was like a side project of Bauhaus and such. So it's all in that late 70s, early 80s sort of new wave kind of vein. Um, there's a pressing out there. There's both standard black and a colored press. I have the colored press. It's on beautiful marbled blue vinyl, um, printed um, inner sleeve with a photo of Gary with all the lyrics. Um, that is, It's just absolutely a fun listen. And if you want to hear a slightly more harder-edged, you know, Gary Newman, then check out Tuboy Army's self-titled debut. Now, for as much as I love Kiss and they're my first favorite band, Pink Floyd comes number two. And as of lately, I've been going down a massive Pink Floyd rabbit hole, which, not gonna lie, it's been rather nostalgic because I got into Pink Floyd during my freshman year of high school, and I literally became obsessed and i mean obsessed i bought all the box sets all the cds i had all the shirts like all the dvds i had everything and i still do to this day but even now like going back you know 10 years ago back to when i was in high school and i was completely immersed in this band you know while i still have that burning love for the floyd um i'd get waves of nostalgia a lot of the times while listening to certain albums that i had on like heavy rotation when i was younger and obviously um as of uh recording this episode they just released a uh, 50th anniversary uh box set for dark side of the moon which of course obviously as i said 50 years it's celebrating its 50th anniversary i uh, did a whole unboxing of it on my youtube channel uh if you want to peel back and check it out it's been getting lots of great views as of lately and i've just been kind of you know revisiting certain eras of the floyd's history and one of my personal favorites is the Sid Barrett era when they first started out up until from like 65 to around 67, 68. And, you know, the reason why, you know, some, some will say that this era of the Floyd is kind of an acquired taste. It's definitely different from what most people come to familiarize themselves with when it comes to things like Dark Side, Wish You Were Here in the Wall. Um, it just has that sort of, you know, pastoral Baroque English sensibility behind it. And let's face it, no Sid, no Floyd. If it wasn't for Sid, there would be no Pink Floyd. There would be no Dark Side of the Moon. There would be absolutely nothing, which is why I feel like people are real quick to pass on this era of the Floyd. And that's why I love it even more because it is the foundation. But anyways, I'm babbling on way too much. So the record that I've been listening to is a release called London 1966-1967. Not exactly a bootleg. It's kind of like a gray area kind of release. And it consists of one of the Floyd's earliest recording sessions from early 67 at uh, Sound Techniques in, um, in England uh, that uh, Joe Boyd had produced. And they just cut two tracks. They cut a version of Interstellar Overdrive, which is the long, freeform, psych instrumental track that they played a lot during this time frame. And there's also um, a track called Nick's Boogie, which is another sort of loose improvisational type piece all just you know made up on the spot um if you're into that you know psychedelic early you know trip out kind of floyd jammy type stuff uh definitely check this out you know for yourself this will sit well amongst your uh, your copy of uh dark side of the moon um i believe what i have is one of the most latest pressings of this that has come out in recent years it's put up by a company called k-scope um, it's made in Germany, so it's not exactly like a made in Russia type thing. I, I don't know. Like, honestly, it's, 
it's one of those cases where the recordings are kind of loosely public domain and anyone can kind of license them and put out their own release. But that's the one that I have, and it comes pressed on white vinyl. Sounds killer, so if you want to just kind of trip out and vibe, then definitely seek out Pink Floyd, London, 6667. Last but not least, we are going to tap into some newer waters uh, with the last record that I'm going to be showcasing in this episode, and that is of a band called Of Montreal, and the album is called Ariat Gloom. Um, of Montreal has been the biggest musical rabbit hole that I found myself in ever since I started working at the record shop that I manage, and it's thanks to my good friend slash co-worker Joe uh, for showing me their album Satanic Panic in the Attic, and it just kind of led me down this rabbit hole. And let me just say, I did not know what I was getting myself into because of Montreal's catalog is massive. And there are certain eras that ring truer to certain genres that of Montreal tackles. Um, the first album, Cherry Peel from 1997, is not going to sound like their latest one that just came out, what, this past year? So beware. <laughs> but um, Kevin Barnes is... I've always likened his style and his work ethic to a modern-day Bowie or Prince in terms of how he always reinvents himself, always finds himself tackling other genres that isn't just you know subjected to one musical corner. And that's something that I can commend Kevin and Of Montreal for. And uh, this particular album, Aureate Gloom, this came out back, I want to say, in 2014 to, or 2015. I do have to say it is probably the last great Of Montreal album because ever since this album... Kevin has delved into like electro pop and sort of just I I call it part of my French musical shit posting where he kind of like takes the core of a song and then the arrangement just shifts entirely come the next verse like or chorus or whatever it's a very like it's almost like mental gymnastics sometimes listening to some of the newer of Montreal material but it is a thrill and he does have a knack for creating hooks and great choruses and arrangements and that's something that that's a parallel that can be found across all their records uh, but Ariat Gloom kind of Around like the early to mid 2010s, uh, Kevin found himself going more in a sort of more traditional sounding route that almost could be traced to some of the early of Montreal sounds on the earlier records. Not entirely, but more in a sort of rock based kind of vein. Um, and this one kind of has a slight more punkier, new wave ish kind of sound like transport yourself back into like late 70s you know cbgb's and you have the likes of bands like i don't know talking heads and television and all those other groups around at the same time put it in a blender mix it all together with some quirky songwriting and bits and pieces and you have uh, of montreal's aria gloom and it's a deep trip of an album because kevin has always been a rather you know he I say he wears his heart on his sleeve, but in the most extreme sense when it comes to writing about his previous marriages, his connection with people and this and that. And let me say, he is brutal and to the point. And you can get that with the um, with the lyrics on this record and also the music that complements it so well. And like I said, I mean, that's not to say that, you know, avoid checking out any newer of Montreal albums, but... For me, to my ears and my personal taste, this is the last one where there was that little kind of shimmer of just inspiration, and then everything else has just kind of been a little uneven. So I kind of hope that 
Kevin and of Montreal goes back into that sort of more rock-based, more traditional route. But nonetheless, all their stuff's an interesting listen, and Aria Gloom just happens to be the one that I've been listening to a lot as of lately. So there you guys go. That is the second episode of Current Rotations, a series that I, the Record Spinner, am exclusively hosting here on Vinyl Community Podcast. I am always playing different records of different sorts every week, so when you hear the next episode, God knows what records I'll be talking about. But until then, see you guys in the next episode, and most importantly, keep the record spinning. (laughs) 